0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: This is my home place where all my brother and sister grew up.
2: It lost everything. But so our lives, but we're thankful for that. I think the
1: good Lord he had his hand on us. And I like to take you inside, and show you where we we're at. This is the room where my mom and dad were and I had them floating on the mattress and we were all up to the top of the ceiling. And I put my dad on the door and I got him to go through the door and I floated them back into the other part of the house to the back where the hot tub was. But we had my dad on the other end of the house. But if we had him on the other end of the house we wouldn't be here today because all the debris is on the other side of the house. And my wife grabbed the hold of a hot tub and that's what we all held on to. And all they had was their Heads out of the water up to the ceiling to breathe. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane Gregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at The Times. This week we're joined by Zach Sampson, a talented reporter here at The Times, who is a super GA on the Metro staff. That's like a super and GA, like both those things. Um, He spent long days recently covering Hurricane Michael. Zach also got thrown into duty last year during Hurricane Irma. And what was the...
3: I was on uh, Hurricane Matthew the year before that. And Hurricane Matthew the
1: year before that. He might stay dry if he weren't so good at working amid the chaos. So today's topic is storm stories. So we wanted, Zach, why don't we start a little bit with Michael and what that was like. Jumping into that.
3: Yeah, for sure. Uh, So compared to previous storms, one of the things that was most difficult about Michael is that there was not the run-up of the the system coming across the (laughs) Atlantic. And so uh, that affected our planning at the times. Um, So it was, you know, Monday morning that all of a sudden we had a hurricane in the Gulf. And so that day I was in charge of writing the weather story. Uh, And I'll remember my editor came up to me in the morning and I said, are we going to send anyone? Uh, Because we have a pretty small hurricane team now. Uh, And she said, I don't know. Do you think we need to? And I said, no. Uh,
0: <laughs>
3: I don't think we need to. And then by the time I made a few calls after that conversation, you know, two hours later, I called her back to my desk and I said, I do not want to be the person who is responsible for us not having somebody on the ground for a, ma- a massive storm. And I think it could be. Uh, so about 30 minutes after that, I was called over to the desk uh, and it was, hey, we're going to ruin your week and we you know it was fine but we got sent up and and that was part of the challenge is that we did not have the time to rent a vehicle to pick a hotel which is really important uh, Mm. and to sort of game plan you know normally before I go to a storm I like to try to read some clips about the past storms that have hit that area try to familiarize myself with the layout of how it might get uh, struck and we didn't have that time so instead the next morning myself and doug clifford a photographer here at the times who's far more seasoned than me even in hurricane coverage were doing our prep work for ourselves while driving to the area that was going to be hit within 20 basically within 24 hours with the storm we were driving into which was a logistical nightmare Uh, and we got really lucky we got a hotel and we got on the ground and uh, all of a sudden. What was gonna be a tropical storm the day before, when my editor came to my desk, was a Category Three storm with eyes on possibly becoming a very strong Category Four, and yeah. that came up on us really quickly.
1: Yeah, that was a very different kind of storm. I, you, you probably like on the Outer Banks, I know, and I guess the other ones in Florida, you do. You, we've had some time, like you get warning. Yeah, we knew, or like last year, even with Irma, we oh, knew God, we, weeks before Irma. <laughs> it yeah, just like... and, and it really does help for the <clears throat> positioning and organizing and all of that. So. So you and Doug, which uh, from, uh, you know, you hear Doug Clifford stories because, of course, he's uh, apparently the first man out the door for any storm and um, is prepared, I understand. Right. Like he's.
3: Yeah. um, Yeah. This is the third time that Doug and I have covered a storm together. And uh, I'll admit the first time I covered a storm with Doug, I was wildly unprepared. Um, I'm from New England. I had covered blizzards. It's an entirely different uh, atmosphere. And I had like six bags of beef jerky and like three gallons of water. And Doug came into the room you know, sort of like some kind of Terminator-like figure. And he had six different, you know, amplifiers to turn the car into an electrical outlet and everything. And he was like, what is this building made out of? And I said, I have no idea. Um, and and I was like, okay, this is going to be a different experience for me. Um, but Doug, you know, Doug calculates your gas mileage. He knows what buildings we can be in, what buildings we can't. We we always have about 30 gallons of gas, and we're always measuring on the way up our efficiency not trusting the car computer. He has rules for the cars. You know, for this storm, we originally were going to get put in a Ford Explorer, and both Doug and I were a little uncomfortable with that, so we got a bigger vehicle.
1: Um, so there goes our Ford sponsorship on this podcast. Yeah, Go. right. Uh, if you have to
0: cover Hurricane, Doug Clifford is the guy to cover it. Oh, right? he is, <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah. And Doug, Doug's experience on that front has come partially from, I mean, he's covered well more than a dozen storms, and he's had bad things happen. Mm-hmm. You know, he lost a vehicle in the it's Outer In banks. the Outer Banks. Um, and had to float on his dry bag uh, because the vehicle washed away. Oh, my cow. But he's done that when I haven't been there. So now that I'm there, he's already made those mistakes, and I'm fine.
1: (laughs) So this one you were talking about. So the difference with Michael, of course, it comes up, and it catches us really by surprise very quickly. Um, And then you guys are racing up there. And the other thing about this one is that's describe a little bit about that part of Florida because it's not like... So much of Florida, which is built up and touristy. I mean...
3: Right, yeah. It's it's a much different area. It's the big bend into what's called the Forgotten Coast. And it's gorgeous if you've ever been there in non-hurricane times. But there's not a ton of roads to access different cities. They're sort of small, isolated communities, uh, you know, villages almost. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it's fairly narrow geographically, right? So the panhandle is, 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 it's not far until you get to Georgia. So basically if a hurricane is coming ashore there, everywhere is going to get hit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, that poses some challenges, you know, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of how connected the population is, and everything is right on the water. If you drive down there, it's a scenic highway, the uh, US-98. It's gorgeous, but all the houses are there. It's all stilt houses. While we were driving up, we talked to the emergency management director, I think, for Franklin County, and she. we try to report in the car on the way up so we can file a story by the time we get there. Hmm. And she gave us, you know, we, we do the interviews over the cars Bluetooth together, and she, she said something where she said, this water is going to, uh, this is almost direct, she, this water is going to come in and roll over us and just never stop, which is evocative. And the problem is, is that most of those people live right on the water, because they work on the water. It's mm-hmm. a, you know, fishing industry, and because there's a lot of state forest land north of that, and so you can't live there, because the state owns it.
1: Right. Wow. What, so, um, what do you guys find most challenging about working during a, a hurricane? especially being out in a hurricane?
0: Well, I think it's finding people who are willing to talk to you before the hurricane because, you know, pe- some people are out and about doing that, but most people have left. I covered 11 hurricanes in seven years on the Outer Banks, and I still remember that feeling of, like, there's only one bridge on and off this long barrier yeah. island, and everybody's leaving, and you're coming. Did you get that creepy feeling when you're going up there? It's like everybody's left, and you're going into it. So looking for people, I think, like... It's a
1: little apocalyptic, yeah.
0: It, it is, and I think, you know, the the... the Police officers are the ones you want to talk to a lot at the beginning, but they're too busy. You know, mm-hmm. they're they We followed crews of firefighters knocking on people's doors, telling them if they weren't going to evacuate, you know, we're going to. Who's your next of kin? You know, and stuff like that. I, I think it, a challenge. Uh, the stories ahead before the hurricane are hard to get because everyone's freaking out and trying to batten down the hatches and leave. Um, after the hurricane, I think. Getting there is, is a, a big challenge, like finding your way around the aftermath of the storm. I know you guys had an amazing journey trying to just get to Mexico, right? Mexico Beach. Yeah, Mexico
3: Beach. yeah I, I think that that's tough, too. Is, is part of getting the people beforehand, too, especially now that I think newsrooms aren't as big, so we don't have as many people out there covering these right. things, is... The way I view it is we're almost collecting a network of correspondence. And so I try to talk to a lot of people and get their phone numbers and get a sense of who they are and where they're from so that after that storm in the limited period where we might have cell service, they can tell me what they saw because we may not be able to get back to where they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and that's one of the challenges. One of of the things that I do is, you know, sometimes the police are on really high stress right before that. And they're the people who might block access to Mm -hmm. you or give it to you later. So it's good to make contacts with them. One thing that I've found to be pretty effective a couple of times now, although I I wouldn't say that I necessarily shoot for this, is to go to a bar um, because...
1: Uh, you t- have you been taking lessons from Lane this is true see Zach he yeah, found yeah. the magic spot yeah. Yeah. It's always go to the bar they'll always talk to you at a bar they'll Well, and there's always people. somebody drinking making it trying to ride through a, Uber, a hurricane whatever, party yes. yeah.
3: they'll, they'll always talk to you at a bar and you know they tend to have been from the area mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily but they, they've probably lived through a hurricane before and I think that's pretty effective um the, I think one of the biggest obstacles is 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 finding a story that's not riddled with cliches, yeah. because you know, and even writing it after that, because we use the same verbiage to describe a storm coming coming to us. There's a lot of churning uh, that's happening in the days before the storm, yeah. and that gets kind of, you know, inauthentic, and it's it's sort of boring, and so
0: and boarding up pictures,
3: yeah. You know, oh, my God,
0: there's, you know, there's got to be another way to herald a hurricane besides people boarding up their window pictures. Yeah,
3: boarding up pictures and things like that. And so, you know, a lot of the preparation for the storm is on what people are actually doing. But I think the value that we bring in our coverage is more explaining the place that is about to get hit. And mm-hmm. we do that through people. But, you know, if we focus on the actions, it's it's sort of universal. Somebody's boarding up their house. Somebody's evacuating. Somebody's trying to take care of a you know, a mother or father, aunt or uncle who's on oxygen. And those are all good, unique stories. But for me, the first story we did was from Apalachicola. And it's, you know, the one of the bigger papers in Florida, we don't regularly cover Apalachicola. We've done some stories up there. I I don't regularly report from there. (laughs) But everybody who's about to read the story, both in Florida and across the country who's following the Weather Channel, is hearing, hey, it's going to hit at Apalachicola. Hey, it's going to hit at an Apalachicola. And that place doesn't necessarily mean something mm-hmm. to them. And so I think those first stories can be really valuable if they give, a, give people an idea of the sense of place and who is actually there. Uh, and usually get that, like, the bar is pretty good for that because those people are, you know, they know, they know it and they want to talk about it. And, and each little pocket of Florida is unique. Um, and preparing for the storm in that way I think is pretty valuable.
0: We always seem to find people tying up their boats too. That was like another place we would kind of start out when it was still daylight doing yeah. the boat tying up because everybody's out there worried mm-hmm. but helping each other. You know, there's like a sense of community of the people who who have their boats that they're worried about, and then the bars after it get dark. Like okay, the, the, now
3: we're good. yeah, the marina is like a pretty good place to go. And the one, one thing Doug and I try to do typically is also. You have to conserve your gas. There's no gas, so every decision you're making is calculated. Like, do we need to go get this other part of the story right now, or is it gonna burn us two days from now when it's a disaster zone? But we try to drive around the entire city to see the parts that are vulnerable, and sometimes that involves getting a little bit away from the water to an area where people are, you know, disenfranchised or are not as well prepared for the storm. Mm-hmm. If you just stick to the the ocean front, which is where a lot of the most dramatic pictures may be in the moments after the storm. Uh, there's a lot of people, like in Mexico Beach, there's a lot of those homes where people who actually live there, but there's also some that are, you know, people who have a second host, and they're from Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And we have a responsibility. You need to go to the other neighborhoods, too, right? right. You know, you don't want to just be in the the, prop, the properties that are most likely to withstand the storm. You need to find the areas that are also extremely vulnerable, and that will often involve driving a little away from the water.
1: How So how many days were you working on Michael in a row there, and how many hours a day were you
3: yeah, well, we calculated it for um, our uh, time cards. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we went up early Tuesday morning, and uh, you know, really, it started Monday night because that's when I went and picked up the vehicle and started preparing the hurricane kits uh, while the while watching the Yankees lose in the MLB playoffs. And so uh, it was a welcome distraction. And so we got up there Tuesday. We worked through. We, we, we got back to Tampa Bay Saturday night, uh, and we worked that week um, about 88 hours. So mm-hmm. we were usually working kind of like 7 a.m. to 9 or 10 p.m.
1: Juan,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. well, I was thinking about you while you were up there. Actually, I was, I was glad you were up there because <laughs> you did such a great job, and I didn't have to go. Um, Thanks. But I was thinking about how different it is for now than it was when I covered on Outer Banks even 20 years ago. You know, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have a sat phone, we had right? Had, we had a huge giant sat phone that the photographer had to keep trying to, you know, gear up. But we also didn't have to file anything until 10 o'clock at night, you know. So we could be out there the whole day c- catching and collecting stuff and making these contacts and then sit down in the car in the dark and write it. But we would have to file it because it was only a print product. You know, we weren't right. filing for Brilliant. the web. We weren't tweeting out stuff. Like, you were on 24-hour news cycle while you were collecting and reporting 24-hour news cycle. And I just think that's that's even more heroic. I mean, that's like, that's kind. How yeah. many times did you file during, say, Tuesday?
3: Uh, Tuesday, when we drove up there, I only filed once. And it was a stressful experience because it had taken us longer to drive up there than needed. And I had to file two things. I had to file a separate for the web. And I also had to feed the main bar, which I hadn't looked at at all. Uh, and you know, it was around 6pm. And I had the write through person for the main bar asking for that while I was trying to feed the other part of it. And that was, I, I was stressed there. Um, but during the storm, we were kind of in, in the immediate aftermath of the storm when we had cell service, which did go away pretty quickly. I was trying to tweet as much as possible. Uh, and I'm keenly aware in those moments that what people really want to see are pictures uh mm-hmm. even just cell phone pictures cuz i can describe what i'm seeing pretty well but the people who are following you in that moment either want to see the pictures cuz they've never been there or they want to see the pictures cuz they live there. Mm-hmm. Right. We were having a lot of people tweet at us um immediately after the storm or send us email or phone messages saying can you check this specific address in Port St. Joe? I'm worried about my sister. Can you check this address? And in a lot of cases wow. We couldn't, we couldn't get there, or we couldn't see those messages because cell service went out pretty quickly. And um, I I used after, once we lost cell service, a couple things happened. One, I tell my family to follow me on Twitter. because we're trying to save battery to know if I'm okay or not and um, they're really good about that and they're totally okay with it but one of the last tweets I sent before cell service went out was like hey look the the bay is into the land on marina and look at all these boats they're in the parking lot the surge flooding is really high we're gonna try to get closer Uh, (laughs) boom service went out and so I wasn't able to yeah right exactly (laughs) and so I wasn't able to tweet for like five hours after that and I was Keenly aware of the stress that that probably put on people who were following us, including Doug's family. You know, Doug has kids, and uh, that that was a challenge. So when I did get service from then on, I would first file to our editors, and then I would call my dad, and then I would call my aunt, and then I would call like a friend to circle around to tell everybody else because you're responsible to the people who care about you too. Uh, but I would after that, I was trying to use to some extent. Twitter as a feeding mechanism too. So the first story that we did from Mexico Beach happened at nighttime and we got back to the top of the bridge to file it and I didn't have quotes right because I hadn't really talked to people. It was not it was a non-traditional story in that sense. It was essentially a scene piece. And so I just I had been thinking as I drove out of there of what I wanted to say and I had been kind of making mental notes of what we were looking at and I just I think I've, I basically filed eight tweets. And it was like 1 a.m., I think. We were going in and out of East, Eastern yeah. and Central time zone, so I don't know what time it was. But so I filed those tweets. I left a message in our internal office messaging system. And then I texted one of our editors, Jamal, who was, I thought, the most likely to be up at that ungodly hour, and said, hey, we sent it. And then, boom, I left. I, did, you know, I didn't hear from him again. I knew we were, we were going to be out for a while because we were going to, we had made the decision to sleep in Mexico Beach. And that was essentially, I fed that story. And that the story that he, he took those tweets and he made it into a post.
1: Yeah. Wow. So. No, I, and I was going to say, though, I think that one of the things I, I liked that you wrote with such authority about that part of Florida and kind of describing it and also that, I mean, I, you know, yeah, not having pe- people to quote, but you guys, you did a really nice job of making it very visual and evocative. So um, I was just going to read a snatch and we can talk about, cause you're right. I think, and we talk a little more about the challenges of not kind of falling into cliches, which is tough when you're covering this kind of stuff. And especially when you've done it again and again. Right. But, um, so I, there's a little snatch here that I really liked, um, where you, you're, you know, you're set in the scene And you say, large chunks of pavement were washed out or covered by broken wood, metal, kayaks, boats, sofas, pieces of lives altered by the storm. Sand had blown ashore in huge wet banks. Overnight, a building burned to the ground with no one there to fight the fire. The flames sizzled above the sound of waves crashing across the street. Up the road, two people waved flashlights into the black, searching for help for an elderly woman suffering from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Early Thursday, the smell of smoke still hung over a section of Mexico Beach, mixed with the stench of leaking natural gas. And then a little further down, now the Mexico Beach staircases go nowhere, lying sideways in the street, and the colorful doors to beach cottages are 10 feet up with no way to reach them. Homes along the highway look like dollhouses torn up in a tantrum. Bed frames, hutches, toaster ovens, and sitting chairs stacked in soggy piles. So what I loved, and I don't assume you were purposeful, but like the, the sights, the sounds, the smells, you know, like you were really putting me there in a way that you're right. You know, you're looking for the pictures, but I love when the reporter is helping me like scratch and sniff, you know, right? That's like what it feels like. But um, so you've now, this is the third hurricane. Like, has that been a purposeful, you know, go into it and like find yourself trying to drift away from those cliches and drift away from things that feel like, oh, oh yeah. The TV announcer would describe it this way. I don't want to do that.
3: Yeah, um, I definitely think that's the case. I think when something like this hits a natural disaster like this, we tend to speak biblically. Like, You know what I mean? <laughs> Everything is enormous, and there's a lot of hyperbole, and it's epic. It's epic yeah, yeah, right. It's a, it's a disaster. But to me, the more impactful parts of it personally, like what, what hits me personally is sort of the – the moments you could easily look over. It's the simplicity of the scene. It's the the aspects of daily life that are torn up. And I think that focusing on those small details and focusing on the things that are most relatable to people is far more impactful than, you know, writing about some big boom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't necessarily have a great example of that other than, you know, personally how I feel when I go through there. And it's it's to me, it's not like your brain can only process so much. So when you look at an entire neighborhood that's leveled and raised to the ground like some of the pictures of Homestead after right. Andrew, what are you going to do? You're right. going to describe that as mass destruction, right. right? But when you zoom in on that place when we're walking, all of a sudden I look down and I'm on a tile floor and it's obviously everybody's kitchen and there's a couple of beer bottles there that are unbroken. You right. know, and that's right. it's that's that's the kind of thing that I think is really Mm -hmm. evocative and so that's what I kind of try to focus on but I I think part of it is is it's a very visual story and people can see those pictures but they can't smell what it's like and Mm -hmm. they can't hear what it's like the the most disturbing thing for me in Hurricane Irma was when we went to Marco Island the night the storm hit which is where it made landfall it sounded you know, like an apocalypse movie, which is is what everybody says, right? It looks like the apocalypse. Those are sort of where the cliches come in. But the reason it sounded like that was because the alarms were still going off. It's dead quiet because nobody's out there and because the electricity is gone. But the emergency alarms of, of the building are still going off, and now they're vocal. So it's, you know, leave, get out of the building, leave, get out of the building. And you can hear it from two miles mm-hmm. away, and that's horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's the thing that I think people can't hear or, or, or after the storm. It was really weird to drive into Mexico Beach, and you're smelling natural gas, which is alarming to me. You know, I'm like, okay, are we safe? You know, this is bad. But then all of a sudden, that smell was broken, and you could start smelling smoke, and it was it was distinct. You knew it was a fire, right. and that's uh, not good either. No, and no, it's not good either. And we were driving, and we were going, and closer and closer, and we kept thinking that it was headlights up ahead. But I was like, no, the, the headlights aren't moving. And then all of a sudden, boom, we were there, and there was the fire. Um, and I, you know, I think that. Focusing on those those small, plain details is more impactful than trying to make some sweeping statement. Yeah, I think that's a really great
0: lesson. Yeah. I, I, the sounds, too, are, for me, those are the things that I take away the most from covering hurricanes. I mean, we would always try to go out in the eye of the hurricane. Like, you would, you know, be crazy chaotic weather, and then all of a sudden it would stop for maybe you'd have 20 minutes or half an hour while it was calm as can be, and then the other side would come back and kick your butt, you know. <clears throat> but I remember going to the beach Especially after Hurricane Emily. And you could hear the houses the houses on stilts at the outer banks, just like yours were at Mexico Beach. And you could hear them groaning. I mean the houses literally were groaning on their pilings and then they would all of a sudden like take a last breath and die into the water. And that was the creepiest sound to like listen to the house literally taking its last breath and then hearing everything creak apart and the woods start to splinter and the pilings go down and then the waves coming over. It was just yeah. like the sounds. of uh, They don't really capture that on the, her- the Weather Channel type stuff. No, you know no. what I mean?
3: It's creepy to even... Talk about that, and and to me, I like I didn't grow up around hurricanes. I grew up in Rhode Island, but one of the things that that runs in my head when I go to places like that is are the sounds of the water and when they kind of turn on us. So, like to me, you know, I I grew up on the water, and the sound of waves coming ashore, or very much the sign sound of a sail line pinging against the mast. Mm-hmm. Um, those are things that are, like, very personally evocative for me. They remind me of being home. But in the aftermath of the storm, like right after it passes, that's what you're hearing. And it's this quiet stillness, but it's also a reminder of what just came through. And that always really sticks with me.
0: I, I always I want to ask your opinion on this because I always had this, like, uh, what should I do with the cops situation? You know, like, do you avoid them so they don't tell you to get the hell out of there? Or do you try to go to befriend them because maybe they're the only ones that can get you in there, you know? Or come I've, save you. If- <laughs> or come save. I, I was always very, very conflicted about my relationship with state troopers and policemen in hurricanes. I, I I One year I would, like, totally, like, kiss their butt and try to be their friend. And the next year I'd be like, oh, I hope they don't see me, you know?
3: Yeah, I'm still conflicted about it. And it's kind of a a game time decision either way. Um there were definitely points where we pushed into areas where there was authorities. Um and I was wary of it. I thought it was gonna get us kicked out. But I think we kind of decide in the moment. We as you get further and further from landfall is when kind of the bureaucracy of, you know, disaster sets in, and that's when they start to regulate where you can go to. And so you hit all these checkpoints, and you kind of need to have a line each time. You know, you kind of game plan as you're going up. You assess it. You're like, okay, I think this is going to work. And, you know, one, I remember at one point we went up, and Doug was like, oh, oh boy, here we go. We're not going to get through. And Doug decided that his strategy was going to be to say nothing. And so the officer said, where are you headed? And Doug pointed uh, and they didn't ask who we were. They didn't ask any of that, and we just kept going. You know, it's, I, I, I'm, I lean towards being polite and friendly with the officers when you need to be but not making an effort to run into them too, too much because, uh, you know, we made contact with a search and rescue crew, and there might have been a story there. You know, there might have been a story there in terms of them finding something if if they were going to get us access into the place. But it felt like after that, all we would get was regulated. And so we were more likely to follow find a story if we found a resident who could take us through it than if we could find an officer who, you know, has rules. The thing, the thing that I always remember, because I, I covered police for a while, and the thing that I always think about with those, and, you know, both my brothers are volunteer firefighters, and the thing that I always think about when I approach those scenes, like even in a shooting, you know, at home or a hurricane, is that that person is very likely not going to get in trouble if they don't let us into a place. But if they do or if they do talk to us, they're more likely to get in trouble. And I kind of think most people, especially in a pressure situation, including us, work under a system of covering their own butt. And so I don't don't take it personal if I feel like they're just trying to protect themselves.
1: Is there anything we haven't covered that comes to mind, you guys, as sort of like things that – over, the, over time, you've picked up and it's like, okay, now I always do this or I, I never do that when I'm coming out and, and covering something like like a hurricane.
0: Steel-toed boots. <laughs> I, I didn't really think of the value of that back in the day, but now I have them in my car all the time in case something like that happens. Bring in extra food, I think, to share with people, especially afterward. Mm-hmm. You know, not just enough to get you guys through the day, but like... Lots of other people can't get to food either. On the Outer Banks, they used to declare a state of emergency if they evacuated people, which meant they shut down all the liquor sales. So the day after the hurricane, we would always load up the car with beer and bring it down to the people because they've lost their homes, they've lost everything. They don't want to talk to you, but if you bring them a six-pack, you know, it it was like trying. Because it was also like, I don't know if you felt like this, but I was always like, I was so ready to leave when the coverage was over. I was so glad the hurricane was over, and I was so ready to go take a hot shower and change clothes. But then I felt so guilty because there were so many other stories and all the other people are are coming back to what's left of their lives, which is tatters, you know, and I'm leaving to go home and take a hot shower. So I feel like I I started going back a longer period of time afterwards than than just like two or three days later. Like, do you want to go back? Do you have a desire to go back?
3: Yeah, I absolutely do. And I still am in that period of time where I feel like we could devote three or four reporters to the next four months in that area and never run out of stories. And it's like you said, it's kind of like a privilege to leave. You know, it could it could come here next to Tampa Bay next and, you know, the next storm. But it's those people are living with this for years. Uh, and you do feel kind of I feel I felt a little ashamed as we were driving out. Exactly.
0: You feel guilt, like survivor guilt.
3: Yeah, I feel I definitely feel that for sure.
0: <laughs> I also I mean, I think it's so effective too. you are talking about focusing on the, the tiny little details and stuff that the normalcy right in this thing that's so incomprehensible. The things that when people go back to rummage through what's left of their houses, I always found it fascinating to see what they wanted to pick up and save, mm-hmm. you know, out of that pile of soggy crap that had, everything had become. What did they find? You know, someone found a wedding picture one time, I remember, it, or a, a little kid stuffed animal. Or, You know, what do you pick out right. of that that was left in your life, you know?
1: It's such a – I mean, I, I even now I think about, like, so last year's hurricane season is still – there's stories coming out. They just haven't gone away. And this one, yeah, you're right. I mean, who knows how many years people will still be writing about what happened.
3: Yeah. Have you ever had family who've been in a landfall area? Like, has it ever touched you personally?
0: Yeah. Well, Mommy and my parents all lived on the Outer Banks when I was covering those. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I sent my parents away when Emily was Category 5. And I was like, you guys need to leave, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But I had to stay. But I didn't really want to leave, actually, to tell you the truth. When you live there and it's about to hit your place, you know, I, I don't. I've never wanted to leave.
3: That's definitely something you. Re- I never realized that until I started covering it, too, and talking to the people who decided to stay. There's kind of this narrative that exists outside of it that's like, you know, why wouldn't you leave? It's so stupid. Why don't you leave? But leaving is hard. Like It costs money. You need a place to go. And some there's a lot of people who I think in a, a very relatable way would rather deal with the three hours of white knuckle intensity of the storm than the five days afterwards when they can't see their home
0: right because you can't get right back and then that all that like
1: what happened in or then the, you know the the economic issue I mean there are people uh especially on the coast of Florida say who like you were saying you know you, you might have a beach house or something and you'll you'll make a call to insurance and you'll be fine but people who live there and that's that's their only home then and, and then you know being able to get up and move and pay for a hotel or Get I mean that's just not possible for everybody. So. They didn't even have any shelters there, did they? Uh,
3: not everywhere. I mean, and not right in town. Certainly, yeah. uh, I remember we you know we spoke to a guy in Port St. Joe, and they were kind of just there was a a handful of people who were makeshift huddling in the library at the local high school, which happened to be right next to our you know our hotel. And I talked to a 16 year old kid who was a junior in high school, and he was you know sleeping on a styrofoam couch in his his library. You know the. It was a, That was a strange scene, too.
1: Okay. If you guys have any questions for Zach or for Lane, um, please send us an email to rightlane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. And look for uh, Zach Sampson on Twitter, and you can follow his stories. Uh, join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening.